Well, good morning, you guys. It is good to be with you. I uh, hope you're recovering well from uh, Christmas Day. Um, we are in that weird, strange week between Christmas and New Year's that kind of feels like that black hole of time. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you don't really know what to do. You're like, what should I do today? You know, it's kind of a weird series. But uh, we are, we're not going to waste that time this morning. Uh, we are finishing up our season of Advent uh, in Revelation chapter 22. We're in verses 6 through 21. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Just go to the very end of your Bible and uh, you're going to find it. So um, we're finishing up the series. Um, even though Advent finished up on Christmas, um, uh, a couple weeks ago I was absent. And Mike, uh, just thank you for stepping in and preaching uh, in my place and did a wonderful job. I was really blessed by that. And so we're finishing up Advent this morning instead. Uh, I don't know what it is, uh, maybe you could cue me in on it, but it seems like uh, driving from one place to another in Gresham is not very stressful. It's just, uh, I usually move at a comfortable pace. I don't think much about it at all, you know, it's just leisurely and nice. But for some reason, when I'm running late or I really need to get somewhere fast, it feels like everybody in Gresham knows that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's just me as this aggression thing. I don't know. But, man, if I have to get somewhere fast in Gresham, it seems like everybody knows, and they all have this conspiracy against me to drive like the slowest ever, and maybe just leave their house and start driving even if they weren't planning on it. It seems like there's all these cars on the road all of a sudden, and that every red light seems to be a light that I hit, and red lights seem to double in wait time. I don't know. This is just my experience, but uh, it can be quite frustrating. If you've ever experienced this, maybe you would say the same. But I think about that uh, just because in a general principle, uh, waiting is really hard, isn't it? Uh, often the feeling of waiting can produce intense anxiety. Uh, it can produce despair that can lead to anger and frustration. So by definition, if you are waiting, that means you aren't where you want to be, right? You're not where you want to be. So we wait for a lot of things in life. We wait for test results to come back. We wait for family to come home. We wait for a breakthrough in our marriage or a breakthrough in our career. Uh, maybe we wait for a breakthrough in some sort of personal change that we just can't seem to conquer. You know, there's an area of growth that I just never make progress in. And as been stated a lot even today and throughout this year, we've had a pretty difficult year, and some people have had it way worse than others. But all of us, even in a year like this, we're waiting for life to improve. We're waiting for life to get better or ultimately change. And believe it or not, our entire lives are spent waiting. Because even if you feel like you've arrived, at the place that you were waiting to get to, you quickly find yourself waiting again, don't you? This is yet another reason why the Bible is so amazing, because it doesn't ignore our pain, it doesn't ignore our waiting, as if we read it just in order to escape reality, but when we dive into the pages of Scripture, it actually speaks to our waiting, and it points out what our hearts are really waiting for. This will be on the screen, but Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, our whole life is Advent. Advent is a time of waiting, right? Our whole life is Advent, a time of waiting for the ultimate, for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And these last few verses in your Bibles are pointing us to that. 
And it's showing us some really compelling truths that shape how we wait. It shapes how we wait. Uh, this is an interesting um, structure. It's not like a, to a passage. It's not really logical like this and then this, and it builds off each other. It's pretty cyclical. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read this whole passage, and then I want to point out these three different things that are prominent here. These should be on the screen as well. What I want us to see today is Jesus' promise to the world. Jesus makes a promise to the world. There's two ways that our passage says we can respond to this promise, or that we should. And then finally, I want us to see the cry of Jesus' people, the cry of Jesus' people. So let's read all this together. Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 21 says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the gate, city by the gates. Outside of the city are the dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the, prop of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. So the first thing we're seeing here is Jesus' promise to the world. It seems very clear once you hear this passage read, even if you weren't reading along with me and you're just listening to it, uh, we see what the passage is really all about. Uh, we see this very serious promise that's declared over and over again, this announcement that has an urgent sort of tone to it. It's an announcement that brings a joyful sensation to some, and it's a warning to others. Well, what's the repeated announcement? What does it say? It says, behold, so pay attention, look for this, I, which who is this? Verse 16 tells you, Jesus, Jesus is the one speaking throughout, I, Jesus, am coming 
soon. Soon. In verse 6, it says, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Well, what's going to take place soon? Look at verse 7. Behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, this is helpful to see because in the book of Daniel, we're seeing the exact opposite thing that Daniel was told to do. Uh, In the book of Daniel chapter 12, he's told to seal up his prophecy. He's told to seal it up because it isn't going to take place for a while, right? So, John is told to not seal it up. Do not seal up these words that we've been sitting in for the last four plus weeks, but instead to keep these words open so that people would hear them and do something with them. Why? Because the time is near, right? What is near? Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So, Jesus announces again that he is coming soon, but not just to say, hey, everybody, I'm back, right? Instead, he's going to bring justice when he comes to make all wrongs righted. He's going to reward those who are faithful to him according to what they have done. You see this throughout this. So, what we do and how we live and what we believe really matters, But also, He's going to bring justice to those who do not live rightly, but rather in a filthy way, which is not my word. That's the word it says in verse 11, right? It's a a filthy way. And then verse 20 says what? He who testifies these things, Jesus, right? What does He say? Surely, I am coming soon. Guys, Jesus is coming soon. He's going to come again soon. Well, is this something we should begin to doubt? I mean, it's been a couple thousand years, right? Uh, That's not soon in my book. Is that soon in your book? Uh, We must remember that in 2 Peter, we are told that what? A day to God is as a thousand years to man, and a thousand years is like a day. Well, what does that mean? It means that our definition of soon very well might, might not be God's definition. But the word soon is communicating something very important to you, isn't it? It's communicating urgency, nearness. Don't push this off. Don't put it on the back burner. Don't think this couldn't happen today. Right? This is a promise from the mouth of Jesus. He's coming again soon. And this is exactly why the people who first held the pages of Revelation in the first century or whatever, how they could read this and declare this. It's why Christians in the Middle Ages could proclaim this and hold to this promise. This is why Christians in the Reformation could hold on to this promise. This is why you should hear and hold on to this promise and declare it today. We should not doubt this because God always keeps His promises. And if God has always kept His promises, that should give us a confidence in His words to us. We we learn this early on when we're kids, and we definitely know this as adults, that our confidence in a person has everything to do with how they come through on their word. If someone always comes through on on their word, that gives us a lot of confidence in them. But if they don't, it does not, right? But what also matters is whether or not the promise they made is something they even have the power to bring to fruition. 
I mean, this, this month, my kids consistently asked all month if it's going to snow on Christmas. Well, I hope it snows on Christmas, right? Can I get an amen back there, right? Can I get, can I, it snow on Christmas? And I wasn't foolish enough to say, I promise you, it'll snow on Christmas. Why? We live in Gresham, right? It like rarely ever, I could, I could roll with the dice and promise some rain maybe, right? But I'm not going to promise snow because the odds are it's probably not going to snow. But more importantly, I have no power over the weather. So why would I promise something that I can't come through on, okay? Like we, we get this. So our confidence depends on the person's power to come through, but it also depends on the person's history of keeping their promises, and that's the problem. That's the problem because maybe someone promised you that they were going to change, and they didn't, and they still haven't. Or maybe someone promised you that they wouldn't do that to you again, whatever it was. Or someone promised you they would finally pay you back, right? Or they promised you they would give you that promotion, or they promised you that they would protect you and not harm you. Or they stood before you and said, "Through in sickness and in health, I will be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. And so you go to sleep at night on a bed of broken promises. And that affects us. And if we're not careful, we take that and we import it to the person who's saying this to us in these pages. See, eventually the promises wear thin from someone who doesn't keep them. But look at who's making the promise. Who is he? Verse 12, I'm coming soon. Who is? Verse 13, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 16, who is this person making the promise? He's the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So the one who is before anything that was ever made and the one who all of creation will find its ultimate end in, the one who was promised from the moment that Adam and Eve ran away from God in the garden, and the one who was the long-awaited king that would come from the line of David, and his kingdom would never have an end to it. This is the one that we look to, standing in front of you this morning, making this promise. We, we just looked back uh, two nights ago at Christmas Eve service to the first advent, right? And we, we saw, even in part, but we know there's, there's way more Scriptures, there's so much prophecy that points and promises that the Messiah would come, and He would be a certain person, and He would do certain things. And we saw that was fully and finally fulfilled in Jesus when He came at that first advent. Like, we've seen the promise maker keep His promises. We've seen that. It's all come true. So just consider how that should influence the way that we view these second promises. This should be on the screen for you. Um, Dr. George Sweeting once estimated that more than a fourth of the Bible is predictive prophecy. It's about 27%, he said. Both the Old and New Testaments are full of promises about the return of Jesus. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to Jesus' return. That's one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. For the, every prophecy of the first coming of Jesus, there are eight on Christ's second coming. I'm bad at math, but I think that's eight times more, right? I mean, just think about this. We saw the promise maker keep his promises. He's promising this eightfold. 
we should view this in a certain way. So if the one who kept every promise he ever gave is standing before you this morning, he's reigning in heaven, and he's saying, I am coming soon, we should be encouraged and strengthened to believe that he will come through. You guys, you can take this to the bank of life. This should be on the screen. Uh, Tozer once said, since Adam and Eve first stood up on the earth, God has not failed a single man or woman who trusted in Him. God has never once failed a single person who stood on this earth and put their trust in Him. Never once. Never once. And the first person isn't going to be you. This is why this should be on the screen as well. William Carey once said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. The future is as bright as the promises of God. No matter how dark life can seem to you right now, no matter how foggy, how disorienting, when you look to the promises of God, your future is very, very bright. So Jesus announced to you this morning that He's coming again soon, and I beg you to realize that our passage shows us there's no middle ground. We see only two ways to respond to this announcement. That's the second thing we see, these two ways to respond to this promise. Now, I recognize it's not very culturally acceptable to say that because I know you're all unique little snowflakes, you know, that like no one can put you in a box. You know, I get that. So I apologize, you know, here that there's only two, but uh, this is what we see, right? There's only those that are blessed and there's those who are warned or those who are blessed and warned. The blessed ones, meaning the happy ones, are the ones that do what? Look at verse 7. They keep these words. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The warned ones are the ones who hear these words and they take them lightly. They add to them. They subtract from them. They kind of do with them what, do with it what they want. Look at verse 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So there's blessed people and there's warned people. And our passage describes that how we view these words and what we do with them matters. Do we just hear them? Or do we actually listen to them? Do we believe them? Do we allow them to shape the way that we live our very lives? So there's really no middle ground, there's no middle group in this passage. There just isn't. There's blessed people, there's warned people. There's Jesus' people, there's people who aren't Jesus's. There are filthy people, there are righteous people. We see that in verse 11. There are insiders and there are outsiders, verses 14 and 15. This is just the way it is. It's reality. You're, you're one or the other, and the coming of Jesus will put you in one of those two spots, and you'll hear the announcement in one of those two ways. Um, I might be a minority here, but um, I grew up listening to the great uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford. Does anybody know who Tennessee Ernie Ford is? The great… That's right, Barb. I'm with you, right? So, Tennessee Ernie Ford, he's really old. I don't even think he's probably alive anymore. I don't really know that for a fact. But he has this really bassy, vibrato voice and um, never listened to any of his music, but I grew up on his Christmas album, okay? And so, every… When Christmas is coming, I know… We're anticipating in my house the arrival of Tennessee Ernie Ford, like we know this. I'm pretty sure the only person who likes Tennessee Ernie Ford's Christmas album in our house, though. Um, everybody else could really go without. And so, as I'm waiting for the Christmas season to come, I'm receiving that, that announcement as feeling blessed, 
right? This is going to be good. There's going to be some more bass in this house, right? Some vibrato. Um, for my kids and my wife, this is a word of warning, you know? Tennessee's coming, you know? There's only two ways to really hear the announcement of Tennessee coming. One person's soul is filled with comfort and bliss, and the other person wants to vomit, you know? So, that's just the way it is. I can make this point even clearer by maybe saying, if you've ever been maybe at the scene of a crime, uh, and someone says the police are on their way. You know, if you're the criminal, if you're the offender, that's a word of warning, right? Uh, if you're the victim or if you're there protecting the victim, if you're there in the crowd, I mean, that's a, that's a blessed word, right? Like somebody's coming, hopefully, to make wrongs righted. That's a word of warning or a word of blessing. In the same way, Jesus is coming again, and there's two ways to hear the announcement. There's only two spots you can be in, so how do you know which spot you're in? How can you know that you're blessed and not warned? Well, that you're keeping the words and not adding or subtracting from them. Well, let me put it to you this way. It's about keeping the words, but maybe not in the way that you think. Here's what I mean. Follow me here. Look at verse 14. What does it say? This is the second time and the last time the word blessed comes up. So we saw blessed is the one who keeps the words, and then in verse 14 it says what? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that may, they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. We just saw that the people who are warned are removed from having access to that tree. But here the blessed people who keep the words are doing what? They're washing their robes. The people who are blessed who experience the tree that brings eternal life, and the people who experience the entrance to the city are the people who've washed their robes. How do you wash your robe? There's no washing machines in heaven. You can't miss this. It'll be on the screen. We looked at it a week ago. Revelation 7 says what? Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? He's looking at a multitude of people before the throne worshiping God and the Lamb. Where have they come? I said to him, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How are you blessed and not warned? How are you righteous and not filthy? How are you an insider and not an outsider? What well, has everything to do with what you do with the words of this book? If you keep them, if you add to them, if you subtract from them, because what are the words of this book? What are the words of this book telling you to do? What are they telling you to do? They're telling you to go to the Lamb. This whole book has the Lamb at the center of it all. And it's telling you to go to the Lamb, to go to Jesus, to look at His sacrifice on the cross and see the blood that He spilt for you there, to see the judgment that was poured out on Him that should have been poured out on you. Right? He's the only one that can wash your robe. Right? He's the only one that can forgive your sin and purify you and justify you before a holy God. You can't do it yourself. You need Jesus. And I'm telling you, if you go to Him today, and if you keep the words of this book, if you wash your robe in the blood of Jesus, then you're the blessed one. You're the insider. You're the righteous. You see, this can be such an incredible life-giving announcement to cling to this morning that Jesus is coming again. It's going to happen. Only if you've come to Jesus with your filth and you've said, wash me, you have to humble yourself. I, I know only you can wash me. I know only you can forgive me. But if you haven't done that, then this announcement that Jesus will come again soon is an urgent warning to you. 
It's a serious and sober announcement. So if this is you this morning, if you're keeping the words, if you're going to the Lamb, if you've washed your robe, how should you be living? Well, that's the third and last thing this passage is showing us. We see that you should cry. You should cry. There are two things that should mark our living until the return of Jesus. We should cry out to Jesus, come. But it's also showing us that we should cry out to others, come to Jesus. So I I look at Jesus and I say, come. And I look at others and I say, come to Jesus. First, we'll get, we see, we should cry out, come. You see the Spirit of God and the people of God, so the bride, what are they saying in verse 17? Look down there, what does it say? Come. They're saying, come to Jesus. It's directed to Jesus. And the ones who hear, they're saying, come. It's this repetition because these are the same people of, of the bride. And then you go down to verse 20 and you see Jesus announces again, surely I'm coming soon. And the response from John, which should be our echo, is amen, come Lord Jesus. This is the cry of Jesus' people. We should cry out for him to return. Why? Because we know that when Jesus comes, he will be recognized by everyone as the one true king. And when Jesus rules and reigns, his leadership brings perfect life and peace. Jesus taught us to do this, to pray this way, didn't he? He taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We, we cry out for Jesus, for the King to come and bring the kingdom because we know that his presence is the solution to our problems. Do, do you believe that? That Jesus really is the solution to all of your problems? Like, do you actually believe that? Or do you just say you believe it because you know you're supposed to say that? Do you really believe that? Because let me tell you, you will cry out for something. You will cry out for whatever it is that you think is the solution to your problems, to, this, to the pain in your life. You'll cry out to whatever you think will fix the, the brokenness. And so we all cry out for something, from the smallest situations in life to the larger issues in life, from our personal problems to the problems of the world. I mean, I remember as a kid, I'm probably the only one in this room who did this, but I remember as a kid um, being in fights with my sisters all the time, and inevitably I would yell out, Dad, you know what I'm talking about? Dad, Mom, you know that really whiny, annoying voice? Maybe some of you heard that this week, I don't know, right? But my parents knew what that meant, right, when I would yell out for them in the other room. They, they knew that I wanted them, that I viewed them as a solution to my problems, my sisters, right? That that they were going to come in and fix the conflict. They were going to bring justice, you know, and right the wrongs and fix everything, right? So I, I called out for my parents. This is a simple example, but it shows in part that we cry out for what we think our solution is. Whoever is powerful enough to come in and fix our problems. You might not cry out for your daddy this morning, right? But you're, you're going to cry out. Maybe you woke up crying out. We all look at the world and we all agree. We all agree. The world is not the way that it should be, right? Something is wrong with the world. And so, we all ask the question, how can what is wrong with the world be put right? 
we're all asking this redemption question. And we discover what we think will make things right when we listen to what we are crying out for. If you just listen to yourself, you will always discover what you think will make things right in your mind by simply what you're crying out for. So when you're in a season of anxiety, right, you cry out for control and you yell and you try to exert the little power that you have. Why? You think, man, if I just had more control, this would be great. Right, when you're experiencing loneliness, you might cry out for and seek out companionship in compromising ways, wouldn't you? When you're frustrated with leadership that you don't agree with, you might cry out for different leaders to be voted in or for others to be fired or recalled or something. When you're financially tough spot, when you're season of fear like that, you might not cry out actually that much, but you're crying out by saying, I got to get to work, I got to work harder, I'll add the extra job. Or maybe you're just a person who despairs into like escaping in different habits. When you're in a season of depression, you might cry out for some mode of, of comfort, right, in a substance or, or some other distraction that you can escape from. Or really, let's be honest, you might get to some point where you're crying out for so long that you find yourself crying out for the grim reaper himself, that you think death itself would be the solution to your problems. See, these things you cry out for will never fix your world because what's wrong with the world isn't something out there. It's in here, right? It's in you and it's in me. We have a much deeper problem and therefore we discover in the pages of Revelation there's only one person that we can cry out for. It's the Lamb, right? Forgive me. Save me. Oh, come. See, once we do that, we cry out for him to return because we know that he is our only solution. So we cry out to Jesus to come, not death to come, not a warm body to come, not simply words of applause to come, not simply a bigger paycheck to come, not just another pill or another bottle, not more control, because we know. We cry out to Jesus to come and make all things new. We pray your kingdom come, and we pray that. We realize that I must also pray my kingdom go. Your kingdom come. May mine crumble. That's why this stark comment comes in there in verse 9, where John is so overwhelmed by what he sees and hears, sees and hears from the angel, and he falls down, he worships the angel, and the angel says, hey, don't do that. I'm, I'm just a servant. Right? We sing this at, oh, oh come all you faithful. He's, Jesus, born the king of angels. Right? He, he's just like you and me, he's just like the prophets. Worship God. Not me. Worship God. I'm a servant. We cry out for Jesus to come, but then we also cry out for others to come to Jesus, to living water, the true river, the source of life that will always satisfy when you drink of Him. Do you see that down in verse 17? 
Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. So what this is saying to you is what? Guys, don't seal up these words in your heart, in your heart alone. Open these words in your heart. Keep them and cling to them, but open them up to your friends. Open them up to your family and your neighbors, and can I say your enemies? Open them up to the nations so that they can hear the invitation to come, to have themselves washed because Jesus is coming again. See, I think you can read a passage like this, and if you're not on guard, we can get kind of self-righteous here. And we can start reading about the filthy and the clean and the evil and the righteous and the insiders and the outsiders. And if you've been washed by Jesus, you could tend to push people away who at this point in their lives couldn't care less about him. Who at this point in their lives revealed they have no desire to come. And so we can feel like such insiders that we would push away other people, but that's not the posture we should have because we must be sober enough to realize who we once were before Jesus opened our eyes. And once we do that, we will have this deep-seated belief that no one is too far gone for Jesus to rescue. Because why am I here? Right? No one is ever too far gone for Jesus. He redeems people out of the most grim and most unlikely situations. I'll never forget a friend of mine who used to be a pastor here in Portland um, he shared how he once, once met a woman, met with a woman from his church, this is in Portland, met a woman from their church who came to Jesus through a Ouija board. That's different, right? She was using the Ouija board and the letters went to, Jesus is Lord. Her and her husband were in a cult and they were open to any spirit but Jesus, but Jesus found them where they were. See, no one's too filthy, no one's too evil, no one is without hope. The words are open, they're not shut up this morning. The invitation is here. Everyone is invited to come to Jesus, all you have to do is be thirsty. And so if you haven't come to Jesus this morning, in faith, I invite you to trust Him today. I invite you to do that, to pray and receive Him as your Savior, as your King. Ask Him to forgive you. Say, there's no, there's no washing machine that could clean me up, right? Only your sacrifice. Lord, forgive me. I invite you to do that. That's the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life. So we say to Jesus, come, and we say to others, come. No one is too far gone. There isn't a person breathing today who doesn't need Him. That's even you. I'm not sure how strong your World War II history is, but you've probably heard of General Douglas MacArthur, right? The five-star general who defended and helped save the Philippines from Japan. He received the Medal of Honor for his service in the Philippines campaign. And there was a moment in time where the U.S. military was struggling to save the Philippines from Japanese conquest. President Franklin Roosevelt was worried about MacArthur's life, so he ordered MacArthur to leave and a few others to abandon the island, and MacArthur was saved upon leaving that island, and he left behind 90,000 American and Filipino troops, but he was spared. So once he was safely removed from that battle, 
He was deeply disappointed, and so he issued a statement to the press in which he promised his men and the people of the Philippines something. He promised them this. He said, I shall return. I shall return. And that would be his mantra, basically, for the next two and a half years. He would repeat it often during public appearances. But it took two and a half years because it wasn't until October 20th, 1944, that he returned, that he finally stepped foot on Filipino soil again. And at that point, only one-third of the men that he left behind had survived. They just eked out survival. But he waded ashore onto the Philippine Islands, and when he did so, he made a radio broadcast, and during that broadcast, he declared this. It'll be on the screen. He said, people of the Philippines, I have returned. By the grace of Almighty God, our forces stand again on Philippine soil, soil consecrated in the blood of our two people. We have come, dedicated and committed to the task of destroying every vestige of enemy control over your daily lives and of restoring upon a foundation of indestructible strength the liberties of your people. The hour of your redemption is here. Rally to me. Rise and strike. Strike at every favorable opportunity. Let no one, let no heart be faint. Strike. That's like a hero announcement if I've ever heard one, right? Who wouldn't want to rise up and strike, you know? Imagine hearing those words after you've waited for two and a half years. I have returned. The hour of your redemption is here. Rally to me. You've been waiting. What a hero. But oh, how different than our hero that we see here, right? Because our hero in these pages, he doesn't leave us behind hoping we'll endure till he returns. He doesn't lose any that are entrusted to his care. Because even if we die, the promise is that we will be with him where he is. And when the day comes and the trumpet sounds, Jesus will cry out, I have returned. But he won't say, strike, 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 fight, fight, fight. He will say, I've been struck. I've taken the blows. I've defeated every last enemy so that your filthy robes from the war of life can be washed in my sacrifice. He'll say, rally to me, but not because you need to fight, but because the war is over. So he'll say to me, rally all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you eternal rest. Man, guys, this is why John Flavel said, Jesus, our head, is already in heaven, and if the head be above water, the body cannot drown. He is ascended. The head is above water. You're going to be okay. Could you imagine being in the first century and getting these words in your hands, hearing them in your ears? You're being persecuted by Nero, tempted to go every which way in this world. Oh man, the head is above water, you guys. Life has lots of joys, and life is hard. So cry, right? Cry out to Jesus to come, and cry out to others to come to Jesus.
Is this your cry? It's Jesus' promise. It's his promise. Let's all stand together as we go into a time of prayer and response. God, we're so thankful that you've never failed anyone who's ever walked this earth and trusted in you. We praise you, God, for being the promise maker and the promise keeper. Lord, I pray that, that we would stand on these firm words this morning, that we would keep them, that we would daily run to the Lamb. that we would worship you, God, that we would see you as the one that we need, the one that we hope in. Oh, we live under so much illusion. We think we've got it together and then we lose something and we're back clawing at hope again. But God, you are our living hope, the one who unshakably is there through everything. So God, we long for you. We hope in you. I pray that our lives respond to you rightly, even in the way that we sing right now, in the prayers of our hearts. More than anything, Lord, I pray that we'd worship you through our daily action this week and every day, to, every day that comes. No matter what comes our way, Lord, may we never cease worshiping you, looking to you in your return. So we say, come, Lord Jesus, would you come? Come quickly. Amen.